This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not uh, need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We're so glad you can join us for this hour for the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we will take people's questions. You can deliver those questions to us in a number of formats. Uh, you can call us directly at the uh, South Carolina Exchange. It's the 843 Exchange, and that number is 525-1859, 843-525-1859, or toll-free, the 877 number is the call letters WAGP980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. We're always happy to receive questions in that format. And the email address is TBL. That stands for The Bible Line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you do call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we would be happy to receive it in that fashion as well. So, Rick, with that said, let's go ahead and, and get started this morning. All right, Pastor, very good. A listener wrote the following email. I was going to a local Hilton Head Island church for a praise night. I was looking at the site, looked good, quotes from Ravenhill, Jonathan Edwards, and Ravi, looks good. Then, a family pastor, a female, whose clothes I won't describe to you. My heart was broken. How can a church disobey God so completely? I know I have a tendency to be overly critical in the discernment area, after all, I grew up listening to Dr. David Reagan, Dr. Ed Heinsohn, and others. I jokingly say I can definitely find some error in most things. And yes, God is working on that. But I don't understand, Pastor Carl. I mean, how can a church be or seem to be biblical and yet compromise on women pastors? Even my beloved David Wilkerson called Carter Conlon's wife an anointed pastor. Robert Jeffress and Franklin Graham, David Jeremiah, and others also called Paula White a pastor. If clear biblical theology is clearly so wrong in one area, isn't it reasonable to think it may be off in others? Since a little leaven destroys the whole loaf and we are also commanded to break ties with anyone who calls himself a brother yet persists in sexual immorality, how much more should we when folks have female pastorettes? I'm not at all confused at God's word. I am confused not this happening and what if any my response should be, I am deeply brokenhearted. What do I do? What do I do? Well, it's a fair question, and, you know, why it happens in various churches or for definite reasons uh, of disagreement. Uh, For some, they have as a starting point, they don't believe the Bible to be authoritative. So they say that there are errors in the Bible and that it's only inspired in spots. And if it's only inspired in spots, then you have to be inspired to spot the spots. And some people would say, for instance, that the Apostle Paul was, you know, misogynist and hated women and had a certain bias against them, and therefore it was reflected in uh, his writings. Well, he, Paul's not alone in terms of 
uh, differentiating the roles that men and women play in the church and even in the realm of biblical history. But God's word is clear. He said, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And then he gives two reasons for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And then he says it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And then he adds a very important note, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-respect. So the Bible, one, affirms the equality between men and women, just as the Bible affirms the equality between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, yet each member of the Godhead has a different role. And so the fact that we have different roles does not dismiss that we are equal. So, for instance, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head, praying or prophesying, disgraces, and then he goes on from there. So, again, there's a clear affirmation that Christ is the head of every man, and then God, a reference here, Thetos, to the Father, is the head of Christ. Does that mean that Christ and the Father are not equal and that Christ submits to the will of the Father? No, not at all. The Bible affirms their equality but different roles. Just like in the marriage relationship, men and women are called equal in their uh, status before God, and yet in the marriage relationship, the man is the head of the wife and he's the head of the home. So uh, we live in a day where roles are blurred, even genders themselves are being blurred. We, we don't even want to affirm the simple statement of Genesis 1 that God created them male and female. Uh, we want to dismiss that and we say, well, maybe a person has a, uh, male features, but inwardly on the inside, they're not male. And so we have gender dysphoria and all kinds of crazy things in our day that just go against the very revelation of God. And certainly, um, this church, sadly, was doing the same thing. Uh, Just because they quote some good people doesn't mean that their doctrine is sound. And sometimes, too, and this is a whole nother camp, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he does, so don't his ministers, his preachers. So a church that has a woman pastor is either A, in gross ignorance of what the uh, historical interpretation for nearly 2,000 years was concerning the role of men and women in the church and what God has plainly said, and I have a series of messages on this, and I go through every single passage that people have used to defend women pastors. And by the way, right after he makes this statement of why a woman can't teach, one, because of the created teach over a man, she can teach, she can teach other women and other you know, children, um, but after he gives a statement based on the order of creation, and two, that when someone steps out of their God-given role, they are opened up to deception. Uh, Eve fell through deception. Adam, his sin was worse. His eyes were wide open when he sinned. But then he gives this affirmation of the high and holy call that God gives to a woman. And so when someone becomes a pastor, or a pastorette, as you say, uh, indeed, they are going to neglect the role that God has given them in the home, or even if their children are grown, they've created a negative model contrary to the family. So it's a, it's a very sad day that we, we live in. And, um, you know, you mentioned Franklin Graham and Dr. Jeffress, and 
Uh, I know when Paula White's book came out, there was, quote-unquote, an endorsement uh, for her book by Jack Graham and, and, you know, Dr. Jeffress and Franklin Graham. And the endorsement, if you read it, was almost identical. It was almost word for word. So I don't believe for a second they put it out, but they obviously put their stamp on it because they were associated with her in terms of uh, a group of evangelicals who are able to offer advice to the president. And she heads that group, sadly, but she heads it. And so maybe they felt, I don't know, uh, you know, if we speak against her or don't give endorsement that we'll lose the air of the president. I'm, I'm not sure what their thinking was, but it was a short time thereafter that they removed that endorsement from their websites. And I think they realized that what they did was not ideal. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. And we've got a live caller from Indiana on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Hey. Dr. Bogey, this is Katie from Indiana. And I was on your trip to Israel last year, and I had stage four breast cancer, and by the grace of God and conventional and innovative medicine, I am now, uh, the cancer is undetectable. Okay, that is so wonderful. In my personal growth, in my walk with the Lord, going to Israel. So thank you for that organization. And I have two questions. Um, I know your stand on women and uh, being in the home dedicated to the children, would you comment on Dr. Amy Barrett and the nomination for the Supreme Court? And my second question is the stand that John MacArthur is taking right now with his church. Would you comment on both situations, please? Then I'll hang up. Great. Thanks so much. And that's just wonderful news. Uh, This is a dear couple that went with us to Israel on our last trip and I'm just so thankful God has put his hand over her life and uh, begun that total healing process. He didn't have to do that, but obviously he's chosen to do that. With that said, uh, Dr. Amy Barrett, uh, she's, uh, you know, a doctor of jurisprudence from uh, Notre Dame. She's a Roman Catholic, and she's very conservative in terms of a biblical worldview. Um, do I... Um, ideally like the fact that she has seven children and she's going to be a a judge on the Supreme Court of the United States? Ideally, no, because, again, based on even the question that we just had, uh, God's role for a mom is to raise those children. So someone else has to be raising those children in a partial way and taking away some of the opportunity that she would have. Uh, with that said, um, you know, people who are not born again, and I'm not her judge, I don't know if she's born again, but typically when someone is born again, they will rescind and reject Roman Catholic doctrine because the Roman Catholic Church on paper continues to deny justification by grace alone through faith alone. So when someone meets the living God and they make Scripture alone their final authority, Uh, that begins to influence, you know, the way they think about the world. And God does tell us to separate from those who teach false doctrine. And fundamental to sound doctrine is what is the gospel itself. 
and a denial of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is what, of course, the Protestant Reformation was over, and it's fundamental to uh, biblical truth. I mean, you don't want to get wrong on this issue. You can be wrong on a lot of issues. You could be wrong as a Catholic on Mary and think she was sinless and a perpetual virgin, and you could be wrong on the real presence at the Lord's table and all, all kinds of error that the Pope is God's man, that there's some intercessory plan through saints. You could be wrong on so many things and still go to heaven, but you cannot be wrong on the gospel that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. So with that said, either A, she's a very baby Christian, or B, she's not a Christian at all. But C, she is a woman who has high moral values. And I do think that by the grace of God, that she will affirm life. And God tells us to affirm life. You know, sometimes people get upset with me when I say I will not vote for a baby-killing Republican or Democrat. And listen, uh, God doesn't want us to uh, vote for someone who's going to promote evil. Listen, Schumer came out yesterday, and he said, everything that Amy Barrett stands for, um, she's pro-life. She's not in favor of gay marriage. She's not in favor of the LGBT law. And he went through this whole list of things. Everything she stands for, we stand against. So at least you know what we're speaking of here. We're speaking of a clash of worldviews. But lay that all aside for a second. She is a constitutionalist, and she believes that really what we apply to the Scripture, which many of the founders applied to the Constitution, that we hold to a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible, and so they do with the Constitution, that it's not a fluid document, that it's always changing, that they said what they meant, they meant what they said. You say, how do you know for sure that that's how they interpreted the Constitution? Because of the Federalist Papers, and the Federalist Papers were basically a commentary on how the founders understood the Constitution of the United States. That's why it is a law in South Carolina for every institution of higher learning to teach the Constitution the Federalist Papers, and the Declaration of Independence. And out of all the schools that, um, you know, represent two- or four-year schools, there's only four in the whole state that are doing it. And you've got people like the former president of USC who said, well, you know, um, so many of these things are, this is an antiquated law, and we don't need to apply it, and we don't want to offend internationals. Listen, internationals ought to know what we stand for when they come. Uh, Clemson, they also have uh, broken the law repeatedly. And uh, so um, my my point is, is that she is a constitutionalist. And so I hope and pray that she would represent, you know, those values. We thought that would be the case with Kennedy, also a Roman Catholic. The problem with a person who's not born again is they can ultimately be changed by the culture. And so if you give someone 20, 30 years on the Supreme Court of the United States, the culture can change them, where the views that they started with, they no longer hold. And we've seen that, of course, through a number of Supreme Court picks over the history of our country. So with that said, you know, obviously that was the president's pick. She represents constitutional values. She's going to protect life. And God tells us to protect life. He says, deliver those who are being taken away to death. And those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it 
who weighs the heart, and does he not know it, who keeps your soul, and will he not render to man according to his work? Yes, he will. So you can't say, well, you know, I got an email this morning about a lady who said, you know, hey, look, a woman ought to have a choice for an abortion, just like you ought to have a choice to receive or to reject Christ. No, she shouldn't have a choice. And that person's email is no way consistent with their thinking in other areas. Does, should a person have a choice to come into your home and shoot you with a gun, or should we try to create laws and uh, protect innocent life? I hope you would say the latter. Well, it's just an issue of when does life begin, and life begins at the moment of conception, and we are to protect that life. Um, And again, it's an issue of authority. And so, you know, the Democratic uh, platform has gotten so radical that these people affirm right up until the day before the baby is born, we can murder that baby. You want to go in, your due dates, you know, tomorrow, you want to go into the hospital today and you find a doctor who will do it. A lot of nurses and doctors, because it's such a grisly process, have not wanted to be involved in this whole situation. Um, And so, um, look, uh, you know, it's a terrible thing, and they try to sanitize murder, and they inject a, uh, they deliver the baby um, feet first instead of head first, and just before the head is removed, they put an instrument into the brain, and they suck out the brain, and then they crush the skull so that you deliver a dead baby. That's the reality of abortion, in its late term. Before that, there were saline abortions where you injected a salt solution into the mother's womb for late-term abortions, and it would typically burn the baby alive. Though on average in those years, 400 babies a year would survive that kind of an abortion. Years ago, we had a young lady at the pro-life meeting over in Hilton Head who was a survivor of a late-term abortion, and she gave her testimony and how God had spared her and preserved her life. That's what we're speaking about. And God is displeased with this nation when we are murdering little babies. And to anyone listening who's been involved in an abortion or has uh, encouraged their girlfriend to have an abortion, it's not an unforgivable sin, but it is a sin. And unless you're willing to call sin, sin, you don't have a Savior. But if you have an unregenerate mind... The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him, he he can't appraise them because they're spiritually understood. Then you'll probably come to a different opinion. And if you are a pro-abortionist, you're probably unregenerate. Uh, It's inconceivable to me that someone who is born from above, who has the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth living within them, cannot read the plain verses of Scripture it's inconceivable to me that they could come to a position in favor of murdering little babies. So no, I will never, ever vote for a Republican or a Democrat that is in favor of murdering little babies. And the fact that the Democratic platform has put it in there boldly, without apology, that they want to protect a woman's right to murder right up until the day before the baby's born, that is absolutely horrendous and is just bringing more of the wrath of God on this nation of ours. John MacArthur, godly man, great man, support him fully. You know, every church has to make decisions for themselves in terms of how they will worship. For us, I could not do what he is doing in terms of 
no social distancing, virtually few people have masks. But he does say, look, if you you don't feel comfortable coming, you can worship outside in the tent or, you know, you can stay at home and live stream us. And um, But look, churches are different. We know pastors who have died. We know congregational members who have died. We know children who have died, teenagers who have died, adults who have died where they've contracted COVID in a church. So a pastor has to think through, and you say, well, why don't you be as bold as John MacArthur? Maybe God's protecting your child through your pastor. Maybe he's protecting your little three-year-old through your pastor. And he has made a decision in terms of nurseries and other things until we move past this pandemic. There was a time during the so-called Spanish flu um, and you know, millions and millions of people, 50 million people died. And it was a big controversy in the church then, should we, you know, worship or not? And and a lot of churches chose to worship and a lot of people died. And then finally they came to terms and said, no, this is a, a protect life issue and uh, we need to worship in a different format until the flu was, was over. So it's kind of history repeating themselves. But, you know, I'm just thrilled that um, the initial uh, ruling for Dr. MacArthur was favorable. Obviously, there's an animosity uh, on behalf of the city to take away their parking lot. But a Jewish synagogue right down the street uh, opened up their parking lot. And John MacArthur on Sunday said, we actually have more parking now than we did before. So God provided for him in that way, though he did ask the members, please don't park in front of people's houses, et cetera, and walk the extra distance. But God's going to take care of them. Uh, but there are issues that are going on in our nation. We're discussing it this morning in staff meeting, praying for Capitol Hill Baptist Church, where the pastors, Mark Dever, two of my sons have been members there in the past, one who's currently a member in you know, the sad thing is, is in Washington, D.C., they won't let you worship inside or outside. In Washington State, they won't let you worship inside or outside the church. So that church has to drive to Virginia to meet outside. Um, and so they're in court by the end of this week over issues like that. So there, there are some religious freedom issues that are at stake and we as a nation need to pray for our leaders. And the reason, one of the reasons Paul gave in First Timothy 2 is that it might be peaceable that you might have freedom to preach the gospel. Good question. Let's go to the next. All righty, 435-251-859. If you have a question on this morning's Bible line, and a father called a few minutes ago. He has an 11-year-old boy who he says is very defiant. The father has been unable to turn this boy around. Do you have any ideas? Perhaps a boy's home for a time? Well, that's probably not the solution to send him to a boy's home. There's obviously some issues that are happening either between dad and mom where they are not getting along and the child is reacting. Sometimes, you know, I've had couples in for counseling and they have a defiant child and one of the questions that I ask is, well, mom, tell me a little bit about uh, the way you portray submission towards your husband. And very often what comes out is that the mom is rebellious. Well, listen, uh, one of the key critical factors to teach a child to respect authority, whether it's the parents or the teachers at school or the police officer or whoever it might be, 
is God in the smallest microcosm of life has created a head submission relationship, not a dictator slave relationship, but a loving head who leads the family. And with no head, it's dead. With two heads, you've got a monster. And so a child needs to see that first. Now, assuming that's in place, it may be that your child is uh, being won over through bad company. The Bible says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And of course, contextually, where Paul states that in Romans and as well in 1 Corinthians 15, it's the bad company is bad teaching, bad doctrine that corrupts good morals. But you can take that principle and apply it in other realms and that sometimes a child is being influenced through the bad doctrine of a friend or that friend may be the internet in our day. And so you really need to get a handle in terms of who is influencing your child, assuming your marriage is healthy, then you need to get a handle on who's influencing that child. If you know Christ is your savior, then you want to try to introduce this child to Christ. And it doesn't sound like the child has met Christ. If there's constant opposition to the parents with no remorse and just a continual, continual habitual, I want to rebel, it's usually indicative, not always, but most of the time it's indicative of a child who's not been born again. So a couple of things you can do is evaluate the company, and it might be if your child, especially these days, is in a government school, the public school system. Uh, These children are being corrupted by other children, and it's just sad. It's the day that we live in. We're living, I think, in the... um, you know, a generation that is being prepared for the Antichrist. And unless God sweeps in with a worldwide revival, look, the handwriting is on the wall. You almost have to be blind not to see that God is setting the stage for the return of his son. And these government schools are brainwashing our children. They're teaching them safe sex in middle school, how to use a condom. They're teaching them about transgender uh, acceptability and gender fluidity and all these things. There is, you know, we, we've made things that God calls an abomination, a minority status, but that's where this nation is in. So maybe you need to take your child, home educate them. Maybe there's other choices you need to make, but you've got to do something. And wherever you're a member of a Bible-believing church, you need to go see a born-again pastor and sit down with him, and hopefully he's got his head screwed on straight and his family is a model, that, uh, an example you'd want to model after so that you feel like you would get good counsel. But that's definitely where I would start. But you've got to get a handle on it. 11 is not an impossible age. You might also want to read Richard Fugate's book on child discipline, Richard Fugate, Child Discipline. That would be a good book that I think you would be helpful. But ultimately, discipline, a corporal corporally speaking, is designed ultimately to reach the heart. And if you don't reach the child's heart, then once the cage is totally gone, 16, 17 years of age, you you will have lost the child. Anyway, that's a heartbreak, but it's sadly the order of the day rather than the exception. Let's go to someone who's waiting, I think, online. All right, very good. We've got Faye from Springfield, Georgia on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you again for your ministry. I have two questions. I'm going to ask them, and then I'm going to leave the phone so I can hear the responses, please, sir. Okay, thank you. Um, the first one has to do with the gap theory. I have a dear friend that was telling me about the gap theory, 
So I'd like your biblical perspective on that. And also, I have another dear friend that we were discussing last night about the word meditate. Okay. And was talking about the importance of meditation. I was concerned that we're talking, I know the New Age movement and all this stuff, so I would like information so I can impart, and I can understand the biblical perspective on the word meditate. Thank you, and again, God bless you for your Minister. Well, I appreciate that. Let, let me respond first to the just the simple, straight-out one concerning meditation. The word meditate uh, actually is a Hebrew word that you'd find in places like Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who, you know, is meditating on God's Word day and night. Uh, that uh, word is actually a word that uses to describe the process a cow goes through in chewing over um, it's cud. So it chews the grass and it chews it and chews it and swallows it and vomits it back up and chews it and chews it and turns it over and over and over. And that beautiful green grass in the end turns out white milk. Well, that's really the thought behind biblical meditation. It's not even just memorizing a verse of scripture, though that can be part of it, but it's really meditating on the scripture as to what it means and turning it over in your mind. And it's really the opposite of Eastern meditation. The goal of Eastern meditation, whether represented in transcendental meditation or a lot of yoga kinds of meditations, is really to empty the mind. It's just the opposite in Scripture. Uh, In Scripture, it's not to empty the mind, but to fill the mind. And it's to fill the mind with truth. And that's what we need to do as believers. Uh, We need to hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. And so you see the Lord Jesus doing this when he is tempted in Luke 4, Matthew 4. He's able to immediately uh, quote the scripture. And when the scripture is such a part of our life, that's what God uses to begin to change the way that we think and, uh, and that's what he really wants to do. In terms of uh, the age of the earth, there are a number of approaches. You mentioned one. One is the day-age theory. And this position basically espouses that the days of Genesis were extended period of times that God calls day. Um, it is true that the word yom in Hebrew uh, can refer to a period of time Like, for instance, at the end of the creation account, he speaks, for instance, uh, this is the account of of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made them. So there the word day, yom, is referring to uh, six days of creation. But whenever the word day is associated with a number like six days or three days, in every single instance in the Scripture, it refers to a literal 24-hour day and nothing else. And so when people say, well, you know, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, they are imploding on the Genesis account something that's not taught. You bring up another theory beyond the day-age theory. It's what people argue. Well, they say, well, there were, there were literal 24-hour days, but there were big gaps of time between those 24-hour days. Well, the problem with that is the way the creation account unfolds, uh, there's no way you can argue for that. For instance, God 
creates the sun for the process, among other things, of photosynthesis. And if there's thousands and thousands of years between that, all the plants are going to die. I mean, you just get into one problem after another. And you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org where I delineate all the scripture that deals with this. It's my sermon on Genesis 1. Not I did The very first sermon I did was Genesis 1-1. The second sermon I did was Genesis 1-2-23. And you might want to listen to that. But really, the definitive mark that God gave us as to how to understand the days of creation is remember the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so in Exodus chapter 20 in the Decalogue, what we call the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20 in verse 8, God said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And then he gives us in two verses later the reason for a six-day work week in Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So it's plain from these verses that Moses, he's being anointed, he's writing under the work of the Holy Spirit, that he believed that God created the world in six literal unbroken days. He refers to the Sabbath day as a literal 24-hour day, and he compares our literal six-day work week to God's six days of creation. So the gap theory is man trying to uh, snuggle up to science. And science may have the latest word, but they don't always have the last word. There was a time in human history when science, it was the common science of the day, taught that the world was flat. But you had men like Christopher Columbus who read Proverbs and Isaiah and other places that described the world as round. So he was not afraid to sail, thinking that when he reached the horizon, there would be a curve on it, that the world is actually curved, that he was not going to fall off the edge of the planet. And so the reason people want to believe in an old age theory is really twofold. One is they don't want to be viewed as ignorant. Well, listen, we're never going to agree with the world and you have to choose who you're going to follow. You know, to be friends with the world is to be at at odds with God, James tells us. But number two, the devil, I think, wants people to believe that this thing has been going on for millions or billions of years, that we've been here for millions, yay, even billions of years. What does that do? The theory of evolution, whether it's theistic evolution or those who take a a literal creation by God, but they put huge spans of times between the days, what does it do? It, It says God is just so distant in his creation. He's not really involved in this creation. He stepped away millions and millions of years ago. Therefore, we're going to go on for millions and millions of years, and nothing's going to happen. And it removes accountability to God far from the mind and thinking of man. And that's where we are today. We're suppressing the truth about God. It's a Romans 1 decision where we do not give God praise and thanks. And so, look, you know, is Genesis 1 to 3 a parable or is it actual history? And if Genesis 1 to 3 is a parable, what about Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 and on we could go? Um, Jesus took the days of creation at face value, and I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm going to go with the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. I'm not going to buy into the liberalism of our day. 
and certainly this creation is less than 10,000 years old. I think you could make an argument that it's approximately 6,000 years old and that judgment will come one of these days probably sooner than we think. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we've got a listener from Savannah on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, my brother, how are you? My what question. can we do to help you today? Right. Yeah, my question is, um, you know, we talked about Book of Revelation, about 144,000 Jewish virgin men who will preach the gospel all over the earth. Now, my question is that, that, that these Jewish men will have glorified bodies or they will or to preach the gospel, or they will use modern technology to preach the gospel to the whole entire planet, and how long would they be doing it? And also, why do Christians want to justify tattooing on their bodies? That's because the Bible verse says that he's written his name and his father's name on their forehead. Is that symbolic or in the spiritual realm that he wrote their names on their forehead? Why do Christians want to justify that to tattoo their bodies with Okay, I was having a little trouble with the transmission, but I think I got the essence of your question. Uh, Let me just first say that there's coming a time after the church has been removed when God is going to, however he does it, convert 144,000 Jews, 12 Jews from the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Maybe they will have a Damascus Road kind of experience. The Scripture doesn't reveal, but they're going to be converted They're going to believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah of Israel, and God is going to seal them supernaturally, and they will be indestructible. Um, There's no indication that they will be in a resurrected body because the Scripture is clear that the resurrection of Old Testament saints does not take place until the end of the seven-year period. But God puts his protection over them where they cannot be hurt so that they have freedom to preach the gospel to the world. Uh, There's two other men who are two witnesses. Uh, If I were to make an educated decision, I would say they are Elijah and Moses. One, because Elijah is coming again. Jesus affirmed that. Uh, John the Baptist was a type of Elijah, but he made it clear that Elijah is going to come again. And I have a whole sermon on the two witnesses of Revelation, but these two men mimic the ministries of Moses and Elijah the two men that Jesus had a conversation with on the Mount of Transfiguration about his coming kingdom that will immediately follow the seven-year tribulation. But those men will preach the gospel. And then in the middle of the tribulation, they are going to be killed. And the Antichrist is going to come to the forefront at that point where he is going to demand singular worship. And their bodies will lay dead in the streets of Jerusalem. The world will watch Uh, How will they watch? How will the whole world be able to see? It appears through some kind of, you know, technological means to answer your question there. Um, But then the world will see that they are supernaturally brought up out of death into life and translated into heaven. So God will do that. But through the two witnesses, through the 144,000 Jews, and also through an angel who preaches the eternal gospel, it's the only time in all of human history, that God will actually use an angel to preach the message, the world will hear. We'll have the greatest, in one sense, revival in that the Great Commission will be fulfilled, and the prophecy that Jesus made in the Olivet Discourse uh, 
will be completed. And we often take this verse out of context, but it's in the context of the tribulation period where he says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel is going to go out such that John, for instance, when he sees these witnesses, uh, these 144,000 witnesses, and the phenomenal impact that they have, what follows immediately after that is he says, I saw a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So these are people who are saved. How do we know? Because the question is, who are these folks? And these are people who are saved out of the tribulation period people who came to faith through the preaching of the gospel, either through the two witnesses or the 144,000 uh, Jewish men. And so um, that's how I would take it. But what I would encourage this brother to do is maybe to listen to the uh, chapter-specific sermons in my series from the book of Revelation. They're all at searchthescriptures.org. You might want to listen to Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 and that might be a starting place. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. In uh, the 30-plus years that we've been doing this program, I don't think we've ever had this question. A listener wants to know if it dishonors God to have your dog spayed or neutered. (laughs) Rick, you have animals, don't you? (laughs) Yes. What have you done? I have spayed and neutered my animals. Okay, well, not everybody would agree with that. Okay. <laughs> and, but I'm not speaking against that. I think you probably did the right thing. Uh, there's a verse that the Orthodox use, the Orthodox Jews in our day, so it's really rabbinical Judaism that is different from necessarily Old Testament Judaism. There came a time, remember the people that gave Jesus such a hard time were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, of course, had control over the temple area, and the Pharisees largely over the synagogue system, but both were members of the Sanhedrin, though it was dominated by the Sadducees. In 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, uh, the Sadducees, because the temple was gone, lost their point of authority, but the Pharisees continued and developed a system of rabbinical Judaism. And much of what they taught and believed was codified in a book called the Talmud. And the Talmud was, there was a couple of editions, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, and so on. And in the Babylonian Talmud, it says, do not spay or neuter your animals, so to speak. It's called gelding. And the verse they used was from the book of uh, Leviticus. He says, also anything with its testicles bruised or crushed or torn out or, or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord or sacrifice in the land. And they took this verse and they applied it to the process of gelding. Of course, there's no temple at this point. There is no place in which to offer a sacrifice to God. So they took a lot of the verses that dealt with the sacrificial system and they put a new spin on them. But but contextually, he says, when a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or free will offering of the herd of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore, eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord. 
nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord. In respect to an ox or a lamb which has an overgrown or stunted member, you shall you may present it for a free will offering, but for a vow it will not be accepted. Also anything with its testicles bruised or crushed or torn. So that's the context of it, that you couldn't just bring any old animal to the Lord, but you had to bring an animal that was in the way really an ideal condition. Why? Because these animals prefigured um, the sinlessness and the perfection of the Messiah. And this problem raised its ugly head. If you remember in Malachi's day, people were bringing their bruised and damned, and, oh, oh, that little sheep over there, he's got a broken leg. Well, we'll give that one to the Lord. And they were giving God less than their best. And God was so displeased. And he says, you know, give that to your governor. See if your governor would like that kind of an animal. Would you give that to a man? Then why would you give this to God? And so, uh, again, I say there's a group uh, of rabbinical Jews They do not really represent Old Testament Judaism or Messianic Judaism, which preceded rabbinical Judaism, who taught that you shouldn't. But I think you can document from history that Jews did indeed geld their cattle. It made them more docile. Uh, They were less prone to gorge someone or to act violently. Uh, They grew larger. They were better for eating. And, of course, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God gives us the mandate to rule over the creation. And so we have a right. There is a verse in Deuteronomy 22 that speaks against not extinguishing um, a, a breed. So, like, it speaks of a bird that's laying on its eggs, and he says, you know, what you can do is you can take the eggs and eat those, but you can't take the mother bird because if you kill the mother bird for food, then you've really potentially destroyed the opportunity for reproduction. So there are some principles like that found in Deuteronomy 22, but there's nothing against spaying or neutering animals. If anything, there's a clear dictate that we are to rule over the creation. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, very good. Now, this is a lengthy question, so but it's an important one. Uh, this is a woman, her name is Donna, and she was... Uh, Well, she writes, I'm looking for a gospel church where God's free sovereign grace is preached as concerning all things in this world pertaining to mankind. After reading your church's statement of beliefs and values, I'm not quite sure where your church stands. From what I read, it seems that you believe that our faith causes our salvation. The statement reads that because of man's corrupted sinful condition, he's totally unable to please God. We know the carnal mind is at enmity with God and cannot, has no ability, nor does not, no desire, want to please God. It goes on to say that salvation is entirely a work of God's free grace and is not in whole or part a result of the work or goodness of man. Then it reads, God imputes his righteousness to those who put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation and thereby justifies them. This to me seems to infer that our faith is the cause or catalyst that motivates God to save us. My understanding of this matter is that since man is born spiritually dead in sin, even as Lazarus was physically dead, lifeless, and had been stinking for four days, no matter how long anyone stands over the grave of his heart and knocks at the door with gospel preaching, he'll never be able to respond in faith and come to Christ since he is born spiritually dead. There's no one on earth who can stand at a grave and call out to a dead corpse to come out in the grave of the grave and have them come back to life again. 
The dead can't hear the call. He's dead and his lifeless body is rotting. He can't physically respond even if he possibly could hear the call to climb out of the grave. That's the condition mankind is in, as I understand it. So then just as Lazarus, in, uh, just as Jesus rather infused life into Lazarus, causing him to respond to his call, so to our faith is the responsive evidence that we have already been given eternal life by the effectual calling power of the Holy Spirit as we hear the words of the gospel. My understanding is that faith is the result of the effectual and accomplished call of the Holy Spirit to salvation. It's not the cause of salvation. So I hope that I just misunderstood what I read and that you do believe that faith is the result of and not the cause of salvation. And then she gives Psalm 65. Okay, great. So I, I don't believe any solid evangelical believes that faith is the cause of our salvation. We don't teach that you're saved by faith. We teach that you're saved by grace through faith. There was a great Protestant leader at Princeton Seminary. His name was J. Gresham Machen, and he wrote a book in the 1920s entitled, What is Faith? And it's really, it's a classic work, if you can still find it. I think it's been reprinted a few times through Craigle Publications and maybe Banner of Truth. I'm not sure, but it's still a classic work. I actually have an original copy in my library, and he would describe faith as the channel that receives the grace of God. Now, you make a big jump between what you quoted earlier in our doctrinal statement, and then you make a statement where basically you receive eternal life, and then you exercise faith. And so you've put regeneration before someone makes a decision about Christ. And there are some five-point Calvinists who do that. They say man is regenerated first by the Spirit of God, and then he exercises faith. And with that said, I don't believe for a moment that we can come to Jesus Christ independently of the work of the Spirit. Jesus plainly said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Paul did say in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so, no, dead people have no capacity to respond to someone's call. So the initiative begins with God. But does that mean regeneration takes place before uh, you believe? And I would say no. Um, And I would say that I have church history on my side, that that's been the standard interpretation as people have intersected their beliefs with the Scripture. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So Paul is very clear in the epistles that a person hears the message of truth, they believe it, and that's when regeneration of the Spirit takes place. That regeneration, what we call eternal life, the capacity to know God, happens the moment someone, because of a preliminary work of the Spirit of God in the human heart, uh, because they believe, uh, they receive what God has done. And Jesus makes that clear in his dialogue with Nicodemus, that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, that then he illustrates that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then, of course, the most quoted verse, for God so loved the world. So Jesus makes it clear that there is an act, a decision that brings about the second birth, and is called faith. 
And again, I, I, I take a broader view than the five-point Calvinists who thinks that Jesus didn't die for everyone but only for the elect. But I also have the five solars of the Protestant Reformation on the stained glass window behind me that I preach, and I designed this, that stained glass window. And I did put the five solars on there because I believe them. So, again, you know, we can agree to disagree, but, you know, if you're looking for a church that you can only walk up to people and say, you know, Christ may love you if you repent and believe, and you have to put conditional language when you share the gospel, then maybe I'm not the church pastor that you're looking for. But, you know, we can agree to disagree, and it's certainly a minority issue. Calvin held to it because there were other theological presuppositions largely with how he viewed the nation of Israel that drew uh, these conclusions in his heart. But that's a discussion for another day. Let's go to the next question. Okay. um, Hopefully you can answer this in two minutes. Paul from San Francisco, California, wants to know what's the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost? Well, the terms Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost mean the exact same thing. They both refer to the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible affirms that they are co-equal, co-eternal. But the word ghost is only found in the King James translation, at least the old King James, that's still available to us today. And uh, you'll find it. And by the way, I cover this in my course on pneumatology, on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And about 90 times the King James uses the word Holy Ghost, uh, like in John 14, uh, 26. I've turned there, and Jesus said, Uh, very plainly in terms of a coming promise about the Holy Spirit, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send you. And, of course, the King James says the Holy Ghost, but interestingly, uh, two chapters later in 1613, they say the Holy Spirit. So what was happening? They were in transition in terms of the meaning of a word, and words don't always hold their meanings. And there came a point, and they were at that point in 1611, when the first edition of the King James was translated, where the thought behind the word ghost could refer to either a demonic uh, being or uh, potentially to uh, someone who has died. So they were kind of in between. So it's, it's interesting. The word, by the way, in Hebrew and Greek is identical, but they do not identically translate it spirit. Uh, they again ninety times ghost, a handful of times spirit. And the New King James, one hundred percent of the time, uh, it's translated spirit. So it's an interesting thing, and there's more we could say about that. Maybe we should pick it up there next time because it's kind of a short answer, but it's a good question. Thanks for being with us today on the Bible Line. I hope you will walk with Christ, and don't forget to register to vote. You only have another day or two. Thank you. Mm-hmm.